while standing, would you turn with me to Psalm 136? Psalm 136, there are 26 verses there, but we're going to be reading verses 1 through 3 and verse 26. 136, verses 1 through 3 and 26. Hear now the word of the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of heaven, for his steadfast love endures forever. So far, the reading of his word. Please be seated. Pastor Joel and I are indeed twins, the only difference being our height. And, but I'm so grateful for the opportunity for me to be here joining you in worship this morning. I want to bring greetings and thanks from the faculty and staff of Westminster Seminary, California, which is near the city of San Diego and the county of San Diego in a small town called Escondido. Thank you for your partnership with us as you pray for us. Seminaries exist for churches, and we depend on your prayers as we continue to serve, and we covet your prayers as the Lord continues to work with us and through us in serving. And happy Reformation Day to you all as we remember the Lord's kind work among us. And so as we turn to him in his word, let's begin with a word of prayer asking for his guidance this morning. Father, we thank you so much for inviting us, your sons and daughters, into your home so that we may behold your glory, to turn to your word, to seek greater understanding by the leading and teaching of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for many who have walked before us, who set the foundation necessary for our growth as well as for our maturity. We thank you for the continued work among the churches and in this particular church of Smyrna PCA. We ask for your guidance, O Lord. Teach us this morning that we may hear your voice directly in the word proclaimed, that we may apply these things to our lives, not only as intellectual exercises for our greater understanding, but the very things that you desire us to be as we seek to serve and love you more. We pray these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Friends, when you're young, We think in increments of months, how many of us have daughters or sons who almost reaching four would say, in two months, I would be four. And they are very upset if you're unwilling to point out that they're four and call them three years old because they're thinking in months as much as possible. Now that I have teenagers, they think in years. A number of times my son has said to me many years ago, you find out it's two or three years ago, but for him, it felt like a lifetime ago as he thinks about what actually took place then. When you get to be about my age and you have to start wearing progressive lenses, and if you don't know what that is, count yourself blessed. When you're at my age, you start thinking in decades. You start saying things like, when I was in my 20s, 30s, perhaps even 40s, and finding out that the church is now 107 years old, you could even say the last century of the church's history. And many of us think in decades in that way. Aging for us provides us with perspective and lovers of history value the lessons learned 
and the wisdom gained over time. But if much wisdom can be gained by thinking about years and perhaps even decades in our lives, just imagine what the psalmist does with centuries, and in this case, millennia, thousands of years. And I do hope that as we reflect upon this passage this morning, that we will agree upon one thing. The good God is faithful and worthy of our things. The good God is faithful and worthy of our things. The psalmist sets out this morning with a main point in verse 1 when he says, Give thanks to the Lord, for he, that is God, is good. Perhaps you may remember the story of the rich young man in Mark chapter 10, when he approached Jesus and asked, Good teacher, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? As Jesus usually does, he doesn't actually answer the question people ordinarily ask. And oftentimes, he returns the favor by asking them a question, directing them in the direction that he wants them to go. Because he answered this rich young man by saying, why do you call me good? He said, no one is good except God alone. God acknowledges, Jesus acknowledges that God is good. Why is God good is the question we ask. And the psalmist explains by a brief overview of human history, not just the last few years, but thousands of years. Many of us struggle with modern arrogance, thinking that everything that mattered happened last year or in my lifetime or in the last century. But the psalmist is thinking big. All of human history is on his mind. I know we didn't read these parts, but follow along with me as the psalmist reminds us about creation. That is, God made the heavens, verse 5, the earth, verse 6, the great lights, verse 7, the sun, verse 8, and the moon and the stars, in verse 9. He recounts the Lord's salvation of the Israelites out of Egypt in the event of Exodus, when God struck down the firstborn of Egypt, verse 10, brought Israel out, verse 11, divided the Red Sea in two, verse 12, made Israel pass through the midst of it, verse 13, and overthrew Pharaoh and his host, his army. He remembers the great kings in verse 17, the mighty kings in verse 18, the king of Amorites in verse 19, and the king of Bashan, who are no match for the God of gods in verse 2, and the Lord of lords in verse 3. He took their land because they were powerless and gave them to his people, the Israelites, in verses 21 through 22. This is human history in short. It's theological history because the psalmist is discerning in terms of what points he wants to point out. But what we ought to see and understand from this theological history is one truth. God's steadfast love endures forever. God's steadfast love endures forever. And he wanted to illustrate that by seeing history and moments of God's love becoming evident for us, his people, who are often too blind to actually see. This is not because the psalmist thinks that life is easy. It's worth remembering he not only talks about the opposition in the Pharaoh, those who kept God's people in captivity, he talks about the opposition of great kings who came against, against them, whose lands were taken away because God came among them and ministered to his people. But perhaps most striking for us is that, is that Psalm 136 
is followed remarkably by Psalm 137. Now, I know you're amazed by the ability that I have to count the next number. But one of the controversies that we have, or perhaps the theological discussions we have, is the understanding of the composition of the psalm. That is, there are certain scholars who argue that these psalms, 150 of them, are composed as an anthology without connections to one another. So you're supposed to read them individually without seeking to see them in context. And there are other scholars who argue that when they brought these poetry together, there was reason why 136 preceded 137, and 137 is followed by 138, not just by number, but also by content. I come from the latter opinion, where Psalm 137, when you look at it, recounts the people of God as prisoners of war. It's one of the most depressing psalms in all of the collection that we have here, being driven away from their home by their captors and those who continue to torment them. As they're being dragged along, they sat by a tree where the the people of God even abandoned their instruments because they had no energy nor desire to sing songs. The captors taunt the people of God to sing a song by saying, in 137.3, sing us one of the songs of Zion. Israelites were singing people, loved singing about Jerusalem and temple where God dwelt, but at that moment, they weren't in the mood. Because what they say in verse 4 is this haunting sentence when they say, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? How do we, sitting in this predicament and difficulties, overwhelmed with sense of betrayal and burden, how do we in this moment sing the Lord's song? I wonder if you can echo and perhaps even identify with that sentiment. That living on this side of glory, there are moments where our hearts are burdened, our bodies are broken, and overwhelming weight is upon our shoulders. And when the Lord says, sing a good song, here our thought process is not, I want to sing a happy song this morning. Here we cannot help but to echo these words when the psalmist says, how do we sing the Lord's song in this foreign land? And certainly last year, and perhaps most of this year, you can identify with that sentiment. Yet what's amazing is that what surrounds this sorrow is not only 136 that you read, but also 138, which actually echoes the theme of 136 in verse 8 when it says, the Lord will fulfill his purpose for me. Your steadfast love, O Lord, endures forever. 136, 138, Envelop 137. Within the midst of this sentiment, how do we sing the Lord's song on this side of glory? Here, he covers it with the knowledge that God's love for you and for me in Christ Jesus endures forever. God is good, friends, because his steadfast love has no end. It does not quit. Even if you forget everything else, the psalmist makes sure that you remember this. Children and friends who are younger than I am here, which is probably most of you, 
But if you look at these verses here, you might see some repetition. I wonder if your parents do what I do with my children. That is, if I want them to hear me and understand what I do and not ignore me anymore, because often they seem to hear things really clearly when they want something, but when they don't want it, they seem to go deaf almost instantly. And then you need to repeat what you say. Notice here, there is a repetition of a verse 26 times. There's an unending refrain here where he says, His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. His steadfast love endures forever. I won't say it 26 times. But you know what I mean by this, right? There is this repetition of the same line. And do you know what the point is? You should remember this. Even if you forget everything else. God's steadfast love for you endures forever. It's structurally unending. It's almost unknowing how it repeats itself, but that's the point. It is unending even as we read and hear it. It reinforces the main point that God's love has no end. When you see a phrase like steadfast love, his steadfast love endures forever. Seems simple enough. But yet, this translation, steadfast love, is a remarkable word that it translates the original, and perhaps you've even heard of it. The word often is pointing to hesed, a point that many preachers certainly do make. And it's much more rich than the translation lets on. This explains the remarkable variety in English translations that we have. The book that I have, which is the English Standard Version, ESV, says, His Steadfast Love. The NIV, the Bible that I grew up with, and I think Pastor Joel also, in the CRC, translates it, His Love. NAS translates it, His Loving Kindness. NLT translates it, His Faithful Love. KJV has it, His Mercy, which is often the most direct translation in the New Testament. And the NET has my favorite when it says, his loyal love. Translating is remarkably difficult. And many who are here bilingual or perhaps even trilingual may understand what that feels like. Translation involves transferring the meaning of the word, implication of the phrase and sentence, and the impact of that sentence to a culture and audience who are unfamiliar with the history, context, and the culture of the original speaker or author. Thus, a famous Italian proverb declared, translator is a traitor. Or to put it another way, translation is treason. Because it does not and cannot fully convey what the meaning is. There are so many words like that. My background being Korean-American, let me share with you one of them. The word is called nunchi. It basically means You have incredible awareness, a positive trait in people where the translation can indicate good sense, certain emotional quotient, but also implies hyper-awareness. You know those individuals sitting around the table who always notices when the water glass is empty for others and gets up before everyone else. And then there are other people who have no idea where the glass is or how much their guests have 
uh, uh, drank along the way. The former has nunchi, they say. The latter does not. It's this awareness that you have where the translation can also have tactful, but also implies actions, not only speech, but one who doesn't have it is dull, as the translations have it, but it doesn't mean boring or even dumb. It's complicated, isn't it? Because language can be very rich in terms of its translation. Hesed works this way. While there are words that you can use, certainly there is not one word that can fully convey the meaning that's behind that term. The word that is often used, mercy and love in this refrain, means covenant love or promised love or the favor God shows to those with whom he has entered into a promised relationship. It's enduring because God is God and his word never changes. It's about mercy bestowed upon people who deserve the opposite, living in sin, rebellion, and hostility toward God. It's about grace poured out upon people who do not deserve the riches of his blessings, having lived for oneself, not worshiping the God of creation and redemption, instead exchanged him for something else that we see right around us. And depending upon those things as our security and our foundation. It's about love given to people who did not love well and who even after receiving love do not continue to love, often professing one thing with their mouths and in their songs, but actions betraying those alleged convictions in their hearts. It is covenant promissory love fulfilled in God's case in the Son because he says it endures forever and it culminates in the action of God in his salvific work in his son, Jesus Christ, through his son alone. Note with me as we read Paul's writing here, not the mechanism of salvation for which the Reformation is known, justification by faith, certainly very important, but I want you to hear Paul's description of the motivation of salvation that led to God sending his own son for us. For Ephesians chapter 2, verses 4 through 8, these verses are trying to describe what affection God has for you when it says, but God, and that but is such an important word, isn't it? But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace. You have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace. How? In kindness toward us. By what? In Christ Jesus. And then he goes on to say, for by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. This is Paul trying to explain something that is inexplicable. It's Paul trying to put into sentences that cannot be condensed into a word or a single sentence. 
It's about the matchless. And there is immeasurable love and grace God has for you that he wants us to be able to understand what we see right before us in the coming and living and dying and rising of our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. Thus, he explains it by saying, but God demonstrates his promising love for us in this. While we were still sinners, that means we weren't clamoring for him, we weren't turned toward him, we weren't reaching out for him, we were not wanting him. In fact, we were reveling in our sin and our rebellion as well as our desire to run away from him. At that time, Christ died for us in mercy and grace and love. But the key in this psalm, as he reminds us, as he tries to teach us what this love is like, is that this love of the Lord is constant, it never ends, and never quits. Thus, Romans 8, 35 and 39, when God demonstrated his love for us in Christ Jesus, his unending, never-quitting, loyal love, he says, this is what happens. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Why? Because according to Hebrews, written to those who are being persecuted, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. This amazing truth is something I know you hear from the pulpit every Sunday. I also recognize, along with you, sometimes it doesn't feel like it. Is it true? Sometimes you don't hear God's voice, though you want to. You don't see God's answer, though you pray, and you pray often and persistently. You don't feel his presence, despite the fact that you desire to be near him. But the teaching that the psalmist is reminding us of, and what Paul is affirming for us, can be something like this. And forgive me, because illustrations are limited, isn't it? But I'm going to give an illustration that hopefully helps us in some ways. We have two kids, Anna and Simeon. We named them before they were born, as I was telling some of the folks who gathered together yesterday. We named our kids Anna and Simeon without knowing whether they're going to be two boys or two girls or a boy and a girl. It didn't matter. If we had two boys, they would have been named Anna and Simeon. If we had two girls, they would have been named Anna and Simeon. Now, when we didn't have children, and especially when I was single, I was an expert in child-rearing. I don't know if the single friends who are here know what I mean by this. I knew everything about it. And in fact, philosophically and theoretically, I was really judgmental of my older sister who had kids. Certainly, she wasn't doing this right. One of the things I really didn't like about my peers and even my sister as they were raising their son was they had this backpack with a tail. You know what I mean by this? Maybe the older friends who are here haven't seen this. Younger friends, I'm sure you have. It's this cute backpack with a rope where you put this on the child and the child walked around. And it's almost like walking your dog. Uh, and I didn't like it. It seemed demeaning to the child. I was coming to the, defenseless, uh, the defense of an, a, a person who couldn't actually exert his or her own rights here. And then we had a son. 
And at one point, my in-laws, in their kindness, um, gave us a gift of going on a cruise. Unlike my older daughter, who can sit in one place, concentrate, read, I'm not, I'm not making judgments about boys and girls. Just simply, that's the, that was the case. In my family, my son, at two years old, was very busy. He had things to do, places to go, and he could not sit in one place. And as we were getting ready to go on this cruise, all I can dream about was him going over the edge of the ship. Do you know that feeling? Over and over again, I thought, this is the end. So we bought the backpack. Um, um, he didn't know any better. It was a cute backpack. It's like an animal-looking thing. And he put his trains, his cars in there. He was very happy. But there was like this 10-foot rope, <laughs> which was in my hand. And we would walk onto that cruise. And there are times, it was a busy day, he would walk around, and he's busy looking for things. And sometimes he would look back, and he could see us. And he's assured he goes about his business. Other times, he would look back, and he couldn't find us because there are people in between us. At that time, he's panicking, looking for us, and comes back to us. And then he's happy to see us again and goes back again, looking for things that I'm not exactly sure what he's looking for. Back and forth he went. Sometimes he could see us. Sometimes he could not. But yet, at no point was he separated from his parents. Not once. And what the Lord wants you to understand, as he says, throughout history, his steadfast love for you, now demonstrated in Christ Jesus, is forever, has no end, never quits, is that very fact. Even in those days when you do not see and you do not hear, you do not feel. For those who are in Christ Jesus, God is there, watchful of you. Though your faith is weak, weak and my faith is weak, that oftentimes we wonder and we are blind, God's love for you has no end. Is the reminder that the psalmist, and now through Paul, wants us to understand. His love has no end. This is where you and I, now knowing God's steadfast love, and that it never ends, it never quits, then there's only one response that's possible. And those are the verses that we read this morning. Young friends, again, you might have noticed that there is a repetition here again, four times, where it says, give thanks to the Lord. Are you surprised? Look at what it says in Psalm 136, verses 1 through 3, and then 26, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the God of gods, for his steadfast love endures forever. Give thanks to the Lord of lords, for his steadfast love endures forever. 26, give thanks to the God of heaven for his steadfast love endures forever. Do you see the repetition there? Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. Give thanks does not fully express the meaning of the great hallelujah here. For all praises include thankfulness in the way we worship and lift up thanks. And the psalmist calls us to grateful praise of our God for who he is and what he has done. And for us, it's easier said than done. Our hearts are prone to wander and our eyes fixate on what is missing rather than what is present. 
But the psalmist says, give thanks, full stop, period. It does not say give thanks in perfect circumstances. It does not say give thanks in abundant provisions. It does not say give thanks when your body is healthy. It doesn't say give thanks in light of secure future. No, give thanks full stop is what the psalmist says. For friends, even non-Christians give thanks when they are healthy, loved, and successful. What makes our faith in Christ Jesus so unique is that the spiritual and hidden realities are made visible to us daily by the Spirit's work. We give thanks not only when things are going well visibly and tangibly, but we give thanks even when circumstances do not seem right because of the Lord's constant love for us that we see demonstrated so fully in his Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. This is why the Apostle Paul repeats it everywhere, doesn't he? Ephesians 5.20 says, give thanks always. Give thanks always. Philippians 4.6 says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Colossians 3.17 says, and whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 1 Thessalonians, you know well. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. Because God has done it. There's a great little story that a pastor told that I'm going to repeat here. It's not mine. But I think it illustrates the point well where he talks about going jogging. And oftentimes, his one particular daughter goes bike riding with him. But there's this hill as he approaches the final uh, 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 run toward his house. And this hill was what was problematic for the girl. Even as she tried, halfway up, she will start moving left and right. You know how the bike becomes. And then she would have to stop and walk up her bike the rest of the way. At some point, as she was pedaling hard to get up there, he noticed that she was starting to slow down. So he ran up next to her, put his hand on her seat, and started pushing her and said, girl, start pedaling harder. And she pedaled and pedaled, and he kept pushing her until she reached the top. When she reached the top, she turned around and looked at her dad, and she said, I did it. I did it. The pastor was appalled. (laughs) She didn't do it. He did it. Scripture reminds us of our need to be thankful because you and I are prone to forget that whatever good is there, it's not something you have done. God's done it. His steadfast love for you is always there and endures forever. And on days when providence is dark, like today, and the weather seem hard for us and against us, even there we give thanks because the promise of God is that he is there with you. Not because we enjoy the suffering and difficulties, we rejoice in the midst of suffering precisely because God's promise is that his love for you doesn't end there. In fact, he jumps in to be with you. Friends, I don't know exactly where your life is and where you're coming from, but the psalmist is reminding us of this. Not just last hour, not just last week, 
not just last month or year or decade or century, but in all of human history and certainly in your life, until the day we see him face to face without a veil, his love for you in Christ Jesus will never quit. The catechism that Pastor Joel and I grew up with is called the Heidelberg Catechism. Many people know, number one, what is your only comfort in life, which is a great one. But I want to share with you Heidelberg Catechism question and answer 28. I won't put Pastor Joel on the spot and ask him if he memorized it. Certainly I didn't, so I wouldn't be the one doing it. But the question is, how does the knowledge of God's creation and providence, providence is a fanciful theological word to say, God superintends everything. He is sovereign over all things. How does his providence help us? And the answer simply goes, we can be patient in adversity, thankful in prosperity, and for the future, we can have good confidence. Why? In our faithful God and Father, that no creature will separate us from his love. For all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they can neither move nor be moved. Beloved of Smyrna PCA, would you remember this from the psalmist? We can be patient in adversity because God's love for you will be present there. Thankful in prosperity because he has done it out of his love for you. And for the future of this church, your family, in your life, no matter what the tangible evidences seem to suggest, you can have good confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature can separate us from his love, which never ends. May that sustain us and guide us this week. Let's turn to the Lord in prayer, shall we? Father, though undeserving, we thank you for loving us in Christ Jesus, our Lord. We confess to you our sinfulness, not only throughout the week, but throughout the years. And even now, as we sit, we recognize our eyes wander, our minds are not focused, and our hearts yearn for something else besides you. But Lord, we are so grateful for Christ Jesus, who lived and died and resurrected on our behalf, so that we may have life and purpose in all that we do. Work among us, O Lord. Transform us into the image as you recreate us in Christ Jesus. Grant to us growing conviction and purpose so that all that we do as church and family and individuals, we may bring honor and glory to your name. Magnify the name of Christ Jesus on high through the ministry of Smyrna PCA so that the greater Atlanta area as well as those who are big and small in this congregation, will come to a greater knowledge of not only what Scripture teaches, but the love of God found therein, with Christ, the cross of Christ Jesus our Lord. For we pray these things in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord.